Hello, everybody, and welcome in to the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. I am your host, Justin Jackson, and in this week's episode, we'll be in talking about the NBA. We'll dive into a little NFL. We'll touch on some MLB. We'll talk about a little college football, and we'll have our best for last. Now, remember, you can follow the show, subscribe, like, and comment on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and you can also, definitely you should, Follow the Twitter and Instagram pages at JTime Sports, which is the same thing as the podcast. It's just in time sports, Twitter and Instagram. And it is for when the show is released and also breaking news on all sports. Uh, me, whenever I'm watching a game, I may live tweet on Twitter sometimes. It's things of that nature, a way to connect with me as well. Now, I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. guys and welcome into an absolutely loaded show one of our more diverse shows we've had in a few weeks uh you know it's getting around that dead period where pretty much thanks to covid we actually are getting extended sports you know you, you know it's early june usually it's the nba finals time we'd only be having baseball right about now uh maybe nba finals of course but then in a couple weeks it'll be baseball time well, thank, thanks to COVID, one of the few positives in COVID and 2020 in general was that sports got pushed around a little bit. And so basketball still feeling the effects of that, the NBA. And so we are getting second round action in the same time period that the old NBA final schedule would be. Um, before I jump into anything, I want to congratulate the Oklahoma softball team, University of Oklahoma softball team on winning the national championship. Congratulations, ladies. You guys have earned it. You're the best team in the country, number one overall seed, improved it in the NCAA tournament. Uh, but back to the NBA. So let's just dive right into it. We're going to actually start with the game, the most recent game that's been played, which is Utah and the Clippers. Their game two occurred last night. Um, I usually don't do this. I usually push back. I'm usually one of the last people to the party when it comes to this. I'm usually trying to figure out why this isn't true for somebody. I'm going to say it. Donovan Mitchell has arrived. He is a superstar in the NBA. Um, my, my whole thing was if you're a top 10 player in the world, I don't have a case where Donovan Mitchell isn't. In my opinion, in order to be a superstar in the NBA, you need to be the clear number one on your team. Um... You know, unless it's stories like Brooklyn. Brooklyn has two superstars, in my opinion, with KD and Harden. But you need to be a clear number one on your team. Um, you need to be a top 10 player, um, which is how Harden and KD can both be uh, superstars. They're both top 10 players. You need to be top 10 players. And when the brights are on and when the lights are bright and the bright lights are on, you are ready to roll. And I cannot say Donovan Mitchell is none of those things. He is uh, he is a top 10 player, in my opinion. I haven't ranked them just yet, but off the top of my head, I'm just rolling names out. Mitch is starting to hit somewhere around anywhere from 8 to 12. Um, in my head, he's right up in the upper echelon. He's Utah's far and away best player. He is their offense. Utah has lost one game this playoff so far. It was the one game Donovan Mitchell did not play due to a lower leg injury. 
uh, foot ankle situation. That's the only game they've lost. He is flat out their offense. He scored 45 points in game one. He's only scored 37 points in game two. He's shooting about 55%, if memory serves me correctly, from the field. Um, and you, the Clippers have no answer. When you look at how they guarded him last night, Kawhi got a shot, didn't work. Paul George got a shot, didn't work. Patrick Beverly played 21 minutes compared to Rondo's zero minutes and in any attempt to bother Donovan Mitchell. It didn't work. At a certain point, they went to the zone. It threw Utah off a couple of possessions, then they tried to crack that around. So they come out of zone, and Donald Mitchell starts going to work again. Um, I'm hearing Dwayne Wade 2.0 comparisons. I I can see Dwayne Wade just with a, more of a jumper and less of a around-the-rim package. Donovan Mitchell is greater on him. He's got bunnies for days, but I feel like his package is more of a scorer's package. He's got a floater. He's got, you know, scoop layups. He's got reverse layups, things of that nature. Um, D. Wade's package around the rim was an attacking, especially his flash days. It was He was going to dunk on you when he came downhill. Uh, in his older age, you got the Euro steps. You got the reverse, the scoop layups, things like that. But when he was in his younger days, fresh out of Marquette, he was looking to dunk on whoever was down under the goal, uh, a la Kendrick Perkins, a la Anderson Verigal. Uh, two of his bigger posters. He was looking to dunk on whoever it was. Spider is more of a scorer's mentality. That Trey Young package, the James Harden package, where it's more floaters, it's more touch base than and more of a physical aerial assault such as D Wade. But he has a considerably better jump shot than Dwayne Wade ever had um, in his career. And so that is huge in terms of Donovan Mitchell being kind of like a, a modern Wade. Um, how we compare, how Gilbert Arenas has compared himself to Damian Lillard, saying that Damian Lillard is like the finished product, Hibachi 2.0. Um, Donovan Mitchell is, to my opinion, what Dwayne Wade would have been had he grew up, had he grew up in 2003 instead of entering the league in 2003. Um, so that is the difference between those two. But he's been fought the best player on the team. At a good point in the third quarter, late in the third quarter, he had. 45 points, Paul George and Kawhi, uh, he had, no, I'm sorry, he had 20-something points. He had more points than Paul George and Kawhi put together on better shooting. Uh, same amount of shot attempts, just better shooting. Paul George is struggling. Um, early in this series, game one, he shot under 25% for the 10th time in his playoff career, which is third most in NBA history. Bob Cousy is one with 13. I don't remember who is two exactly. But um, Paul George is absolutely struggling. Last night wasn't a ton better. If you look at his box score, you would think, man, Paul George played well. He, he shot the ball pretty decent, not from three, but he was able to finish around the rim, knock down some free throws. Uh, his, his raw box score looks good. But if you watch that game, it, he was not a factor in that game, especially when they were trying to hold on to the slim lead that they had to recover from this big deficit. Um, the defense focused on Kawhi. He was uh, unable to get any shot off besides a tip in and or a tip up rather. It didn't go in, but a tip up. And Paul George got a couple of looks in that in that stretch and clanked them both. He's not a one. He's not a two. And honestly, it's a, it's a little weird. It's like what happens to Paul George in the playoffs? It has to be mental. I mean, we've seen he goes and not even a trolling situation. He goes from an all-star level player. Remember, Oklahoma City paid him with the expectation that he would be the number one, really, offensive scoring option, but the number two in terms of leadership on the team. 
Indiana had built the team around him. Why did Kawhi Leonard fight tooth and nail? Who did he want to do? He wanted Paul George and the Clippers to do whatever they wanted to or had to to get Paul George in the Clippers uniform, and they did so. And he was looked at there as the vocal guy, but a guy that, yeah, Kawhi is better than you, but this guy can also give you 25 points and hold your best player, your best offensive score, you know, five, six points lower than his average. It it does happen in the regular season. And in the playoffs, he turns into this person. Who is this person? This is not the Paul George that we see in the regular season. This is not the Paul George that was on all the smoke podcast talking about how he was gonna be at people's necks. This is not the Paul George that dunked on Birdman Anderson um in the Eastern Conference Finals, I believe, when he was in Indiana. This person, this Paul George, this version of Paul George is nearly unrecognizable. And so it is definitely a uh, concern and a um, a problem, really, for the Los Angeles Clippers, especially because Kawhi Leonard is having to do so much work offensively. You look at what Luka Doncic did to them in the first round, scoring 43 times forcing Kawhi to go guard him. Now you look at Donovan Mitchell, he's going insane, forcing Kawhi to go guard him. Then you're asking for him to provide high-level offense because Paul George can't throw a brick in the ocean. Marcus Morris has come down to earth. Patrick Beverly is Patrick Beverly. Nicholas Batum, there's a reason Charlotte let him go. I mean, it's falling more and more on Kawhi's shoulders and he's looking fatigued. He lost a jump ball um, to a guard, to a point guard. Late in the, fourth, in the middle in the fourth quarter, you know, he loses a jump ball. But I just knew he had. Um, he lost a jump ball. He, he's tired. He's he's getting fatigued. You can tell that it's it could be a side effect of he doesn't play all the games in the regular season, so his legs doesn't get accustomed to it, especially in this jam-packed schedule. But he is definitely starting to get winded there. Utah's home court advantage is an absolute madhouse. Kudos to them. Kudos to the Vivint Arena. Uh, Dwayne Wade, part owner, and the rest of that ownership group. They are having a ball in Utah. And I think they're going to finish off the Clippers in five. I think the Clippers have too much pride. They'll split at home. Um, I have a rule. The best time to steal a game is always when the city changes. Um, especially if you're going home. So I think this is the best opportunity for them to steal a game and avoid a sweep. And I believe the Clippers will win game three. Uh, and then Utah win four and five and finish off Utah. And finish off the Clippers, rather, in five. Now let's transition on to the other side of the Western Conference. We've got Phoenix and Denver, also a 2-0 game. Uh, so far, the home teams are 8-1 and in the second round. The only team to be upset is the Sixers, who we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. But you've got Phoenix and Denver in a not-so-competitive series. Jokic was Nikola Jokic, as we predicted, was awarded the MVP. He's been the MVP for me for the past couple of months, especially when Embiid uh, went down again and LeBron got that went down, and we knew it was going to be a non-traditional MVP. And uh, Nikola Jokic set several benchmark situations he was the first center to win it since 2000 he was the lowest draft pick ever to win it at 41 he was the second second round pick to win it although the first in the modern era because the second round pick that won it before him was the 10th overall pick in the draft but he only had eight teams so he was the second pick in the second round 
but Nikola Jokic was the first uh, modern second round pick and the lowest pick by far ever to win the MVP. Like I said, being at pick 41. Um, so kudos to Nikola Jokic. Unfortunately for him, the best player and the most valuable player in the series between his Nuggets and the Phoenix Suns has been the six foot pit bull known as Chris Paul. He has 29 or so assists in this series, 27 assists in this series with one turnover. He's absolutely balling. He had 17 points, 15 assists with zero turnovers just last game. And it just speaks to Chris Paul in general. It speaks to his mindset. speaks to what he is capable of doing, especially when he is on. He feels like a guy whose career is going to have to be contextualized. We appreciate it. If you look at what he walked into in New Orleans, he didn't walk into New Orleans. Yes, his chest said New Orleans, his chest said Hornets. But unfortunately for him, and fortunately for the city of New Orleans, it was underwater as Hurricane Katrina had just ravaged the area. So he had to do that his first couple of years. He thought he was going to the Lakers, ends up going to the Clippers, uh, which is like going from cloud nine to pit of hell three. In terms of organization, in terms of what they were thought of at that time, then he gets moved to an Oklahoma City that was trying. No, he gets moved to Houston, uh, and realize it's a dysfunctional mess that Harden has created an ecosystem of dysfunction. He goes to Oklahoma City, a team trying to lose so much so that we thought, man, they're gonna buy out Chris Paul, or Chris Paul is gonna be traded before or during the season. It never happens because he carries them into the fifth seed only to finally get out um, and get to Phoenix. And Phoenix has the second best record in the NBA and are up to zero over the reigning MVP and Nikola Jokic. It is amazing what he's done for this team in terms of confidence. You look at Devin Booker, he's getting his shots easier. DeAndre Aiden is getting fed in the right spots. You look at Jay Crowder after being clowned by LeBron, Andre Drummond and the rest of the Lakers crew. He is absolutely playing his heart and soul out. You just look at this Phoenix Sun team. DeAndre Aiden is being fed. Mikael Bridges is being fed. Their home court is spectacular in Phoenix as well. Uh, led by the Gorilla mascot. Uh, it's just it's spectacular what they're doing right now in Phoenix. Uh, kudos to Chris Paul. Kudos to Monty Williams, who was voted by the Coaches Association as Coach of the Year, while Tom Thibodeau got it from the media. Um, humongous job, a tremendous job, rather, uh, for the Phoenix Suns organization in general, getting this thing turned around. You know, they had a fairly cheap owner. They didn't have competent management. Uh, they weren't looked at as a place. I mean, old people get their knees back. You saw Shaq have his best year in a, in a few years in Phoenix, the one year he was healthy. Grant Hill had a mini resurgence in Phoenix as well. Their medical team is very, very well-renowned and very respected. And they're known around the league as a team that can save your knees, save your lower body. If that's what you're having issues with and that is a major plus for Phoenix and now they're getting on the court reputation as much as they are an off the court reputation shifting up next we're going to talk about the team that has the only team to have lost a home playoff game the Philadelphia 76ers as they avenge that loss in game two against the Atlanta Hawks switching up the defense a little bit up until this point Trey Young had been fairly unstoppable and really, there was no book. Uh, New York tried a bunch of things. They tried to throw a bunch of things at him. New York was rated one of the best defenses in the last 10 or 15 years, and they could do nothing with Trey. 
and then it moved on to the Philadelphia 76ers attempting and they tried to do a lot of different things it didn't work and then he eventually stuck who would have been my defensive player of the year on him and Ben Simmons they stuck Ben Simmons on him it completely altered the game they turned off the defensive intensity completely altered the situation and the mindset even for the Atlanta Hawks having to deal with Ben Simmons on Trey Young. Trey Young's about six feet 170. Ben Simmons is about 6'9, 6'10, 235, 240, and probably just as quick, if not quicker, than Trey Young, which is a huge encumbrance. Uh, reminds me of when Derrick Rose won the MVP over LeBron in 2011 or 2012, and they, LeBron switched on him every fourth quarter. And they asked Derrick, what was the problem, or what? how can you get past LeBron or whatever? And Derek responded with, he's bigger than me, stronger than me, and just as fast as me. What am I supposed to do? And so I think that's what Trey Young is realizing with Ben Simmons is that he's bigger than you, stronger than you, and just as, if not faster than you, what are you going to do? I, I expect Nate McMillan to come out with some counter offers to Ben Simmons. Also, the zone uh, was able to slow Ben Simmons down a little bit with um was able to slow Trey Young down just a little bit with Ben Simmons as your kind of point defender. Um, it was like a, it was like a, a man zone, for instance, a matchup zone. It was a very intriguing defense, and like I say, it was quite effective on the Atlanta Hawks and what they were trying to do. And then the last series we're going to discuss is the Milwaukee Bucks and the Brooklyn Nets. Now, when you look at Nets Bucks, I tweeted. You can go check; it's still up. That midway about the third quarter in game two, I tweeted one with the bus. This game and series is over. Um, I was thinking sweep. I was thinking something where the Bucks clearly aren't ready to play. And maybe, you know, they get a game off of pride. Even at that point, I didn't know how pride was going to help. Uh, this is without James Harden. This is the original team uh, that was supposed to be with KD and Kyrie and the supporting cast. Obviously, you know, the addition of Blake Griffin wasn't there. Uh, stuff like that. But it was... A situation where Katie and Kyrie were on the floor together, uh, Sands Harden. So it's even scarier when you think of the Bucks were getting run off the floor without um, James Harden even being there. And so when you take a look at that, I was thinking sweep. May, again, maybe a game for pride. But they played a different game. They played a different game in game three. Chris Middleton woke up. Giannis Antetokounmpo woke up. Um, they scored 68 of their team's 88 points. Yes, you heard me correctly. They won 88. They scored 88 points and beat the Brooklyn Nets, who only scored 85 points. Now that is a very odd game for Brooklyn. That was their worst offensive game since coming together. But. It shows that the Milwaukee Bucks have a chance. It shows that when you have your stars scoring the way they scored, Giannis and Middleton, like I said, combining for 68, it gives you an opportunity to get 30 points from a bench, 35 points from the other 12 players on the roster, or the 10 players on the roster, rather, and you have a chance at getting a great opportunity. A great opportunity to win a game that you probably shouldn't have won based on expectations, and yet they won game three, and now it's a series. I think that the Bucks can actually win game four. Again, my original prediction was Bucks and six. I was ready to tweet out where Justin was wrong. 
Uh, I'm not ready to go that far yet. I'm going to stay with my prediction, Bucks and six. And I'm going to say, I'm going to stick with that until it's mathematically impossible. So the Brooklyn was another game. I'm going to say, stick with Bucks in six. Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving shot absolutely horribly. Um, and they still, Kevin Durant was shooting a three, albeit a contested three over PJ Tucker, drifting to his left to tie the game and send it in overtime. And I believe had they gone to overtime, they would have beaten the Bucs. Uh, the Bucs scored 30 points in the first quarter, scored 58 points, uh, 31 points in the first quarter, scored 58, 57 points, the remaining three. Uh, Brooklyn scored like 11 or 14 points in the first quarter and, you know, scored about 60 some odd points, the remaining three. So still very much under what Brooklyn is accustomed to. And they still were about six inches on Kevin Durant shot away from getting into overtime in a game they had no business competing in. But if you look at Milwaukee's perspective, that's the game you had to win. You lose that game, you go down 3-0. You're thinking to yourself, that's the worst they're going to play till probably next season, and we still lost. And so, big win for Milwaukee. Uh, tough loss for Brooklyn, although if I'm Brooklyn, I'm not worried at all. Katie and Kyrie missed shots they normally make. I'm not concerned at all if I'm Brooklyn. Um, but again, I'm going to stick with Bucks and Six until I prove it otherwise mathematically. And then um, I'll adjust from there. But I, I, I legitimately think, however, Brooklyn in five, my original position was Bucks in six. So I'm gonna, again, I'm going to stick with that until proven otherwise. And now let's talk about some news. We actually touched on a bunch of the news I wanted to touch on, uh, such as Kawhi's fatigue, Paul George's inability to make a jump shot, Donovan Mitchell arriving as a superstar, uh, Jokic winning the MVP. Uh, Rudy Gobert won Defensive Player of the Year. I know I mentioned it earlier. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure if I mentioned it earlier. Rudy Gobert won Defensive Player of the Year. Um, I believe it should have been Ben Simmons. Uh, I'm, 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 at this point, I'm kind of just waiting on who has the highest team defensive rating. Okay, pick the center. And that's going to be, I mean, that's how it always feels. It's always a big man. The, no point guard has won it ever since Gary Payton. Um, I, don't, I don't remember the last backcourt guy that won it in general. So I'm saying I'm, I'm thinking just the best big man on the best defensive rated team, but hey, it is what it is. Rudy Gobert picks up his third one in four years, uh, joins a very short list of three-time winners, including Ben Wallace and Dwight Howard in more, in more recent history. And so, kudos to him. Uh, congratulations to him on that uh, award. Again, I believe it should have went to Ben Simmons. That's what I would have voted for if I was a voter. And now there's four coach openings uh, to open up in the past few days. Uh, the four coach openings in the NBA are Portland Trailblazers. Obviously, you get Dame Lillard, CJ McCollum uh, in that situation. You get the Indiana Pacers. You get Karis LeVert, uh, TJ McConnell, DeMontis Sabonis in that situation. The Boston Celtics doing their big organization re- rearrangement uh, with Brad Stevens taking over Danny Ainge, who Danny Ainge has retired. Brad Stevens leaves the sideline, goes to be president of basketball operations, and is leading the search for the next Boston Celtics head coach. Obviously, yeah, you get Jason Tatum, budding superstar. You get Kimball Walker. You get Jalen Brown. You get Robert Williams, etc. If you're a championship-style coach, you can come in immediately and compete for a title. And then you have the Orlando Magic, a true rebuilding situation. Uh, Cole Anthony is probably your best player. Uh, again, like I said, true rebuilding situation. Although you do have two things: cap space, 
draft assets and the state of Florida on your side in terms of possibly becoming a free agent destination if a couple of guys want to try and rebuild Orlando's brand. Um, those are the four openings as of right now. Honestly, I pretty much, in terms of the job I would want if I was a coach, depending on the kind of coach I was, if I was a ready-to-go-win-a-ring kind of coach, I'm going to either Portland or Boston. If I am trying to learn on the job, trying to get a little leeway, I may go to Orlando. And if I'm kind of in the middle, if I can be, if I can't be, I'll go to Indiana. But if I, as I know how I compete, how I would coach, I would go Portland, Boston, Indiana, Orlando. The more chances I can win, the faster, the faster I can, chances I have to win, the better for me. And so I'll probably do that order, which again would be Portland, Boston, Indiana, Orlando. Um, you know, you're starting to hear certain names circling around. Dame said he wanted Jason Kidd, and Jason Kidd pulled his name out of Portland search. Does Jay Kidd know something we don't? In terms of out, Portland job becomes probably the last place job if Damian Lillard's not there. Uh, does Dan, does Jay Kidd know something we don't about Portland? And that's why he pulled his name out of it. You've got the Indiana job, which, I mean, this is their third coach in three years. How's that for job stability? I'm not sure if I go there. Orlando, you're in a complete rebuilding situation in a small market. Your best player is Cole Anthony. And you have a high, you're gonna have a high draft pick this draft, but does it really matter? Um, because I don't see any superstars in this draft to help you rebuild. And obviously, you've got the Boston Celtics with all the pressure in the world being on the Celtics head coach, especially with Brad Stevens, the old head coach, not being president of basketball operations. Um, that's a pretty good roster line in Boston. You will be expected to compete for a title year one. And so, that's all different level of expectations that can go on into this coaching search couple of injury news uh kobe white went underwent uh, surgery after sustaining an injury in a non-team affiliated basketball related activity um so his timetable is about four months and then toronto raptors uh key player pascal siakam is out about five months with left labrum soldier uh shoulder surgery rather he's out about five months dealing with that oh and then the jersey move of the week was LeBron James. Uh, it was reported by us and Sham Sharanya uh, of The Athletic that LeBron is switching from 23 to 6. So remember, he switched from three from 23 to 6 going to Miami by saying that he wanted 23. He thought 23 should be retired throughout the entire league in order of Michael Jordan. Um, also, Miami was one of the few teams that weren't the Bulls to retire 23 because of Michael Jordan. And so he couldn't win 23 anyway. And so uh, he was switching to six. Apparently, his plan was to always go to six. He wore it in the Olympics. He wore it in practice. Uh, he just didn't wear it in the games. He wore 23 in the games. But, um, yeah, remember in that, in that summer, it was Chicago. Of course, they had 23 retired. Miami had 23 retired. And uh, he was saying he was probably going to switch anyway. He thought he should retire in the league. But anyway, he's officially given a 23 again and has gone to six, which was the plan before Anthony Davis's first year. But the Nike stopped him due to personnel concerns, uh, jersey or merchandise concerns, rather, by saying LeBron switching so late to six and AD switching so late to 23. Or coming in with 23, LeBron switching so late to six would cause all kind of 
merchandise and price problems. And so it appears LeBron is going to switch after all to six. But Anthony Davis reportedly is staying in the number three. So that is very interesting considering that most would believe that LeBron was only trying to switch originally because he wanted to give Anthony Davis uh, his 23 back the way he had it in New Orleans. But that is all we have for basketball. We're going to shift gears to the NFL and talk about what's going down in NFL minicamps. Welcome back in. And now we're going to jump into the NFL, talk about what's going down there. A little bit of news just happened about a minute or so ago. Uh, Justin Fields officially has signed his rookie contract. Uh, it's for four years, a little under eight, $19 million, plus obviously the, the big fifth-year bonus on the back end, um, which 95% chance is going to get picked up. But the official contract is four years, just under $19 million. So, obviously, it's NFL training camp season. It's NFL mini camp season, rather. Uh, this is the pre-prep to the pre-prep for the preseason, uh, which is the pre-prep for the regular season. And so just, man, obviously minicamp time, you look at holdouts. And one of the biggest holdouts is Aaron Rodgers. The biggest holdout, rather, is Aaron Rodgers. He has not reported and has no plans of reporting to Green Bay, Wisconsin for NFL minicamp to work with his guys. Um, remember, there's, I mean, there's still a rift in the organization. Uh, it's looking like Aaron Rodgers will be gone this year or next. And so he is not in. Which means that Jordan Love, the guy who we only got what felt like Superter film on him uh, during last season. We didn't get any film on him, actually, during last season. He didn't talk. And then the limited film we got coming out earlier in the offseason program was like Superter film, a la JFK assassination, where it was blurry. It, was, it wasn't great film. Uh, and now we're going to hear him talk and we're going to hear him come, confide in us and talk about different subjects of the media. And it's very interesting how he can do that. Um, again, he kind of kept them hidden. So was he like this coming out of Nevada? I don't know. Or Utah State, rather. I'm not sure. Um, but he's definitely, if he's not a natural speaker, not a natural leader, he's been definitely trained to be. He's been definitely trained to be that way. Now, again, according to, to the Green Bay Packers, they did not uh, allow Jordan Love to interview last season, especially on camera and to local reporters, etc., because they did not want to give any misconceptions either to the fan base, locker room, or to Aaron Rodgers that this was Jordan Love's team. And so they were going to let Aaron Rodgers do all the quarterback interviews, all the solo stuff, and then have Jordan Love pretend as if he's the 30th man on the roster, the 6th or 7th offensive lineman, and his importance level was zero in terms of media attention. And so... Um, Kudos to the Packers for handling that fairly well. A big kudos to Jordan Love for being able to go with the stride. He answered a couple of Aaron Rodgers' questions. There was not really much awkwardness. I mean, it might have been a twinge, but it was nothing really awkward uh, in terms of between Jordan Love and the media, especially when asking about Aaron Rodgers. And now, the biggest quarterback battle in the NFL, definitely in the NFC, is... Jameis Winston versus Taysom Hill, who will be the starting quarterback for the New Orleans Saints week one. I'm going to go with Jameis Winston. Here's why. The gap between Taysom Hill and Jameis Winston 
has to be so wide for Taysom Hill to start. He would have to basically find average level or upper level replacements for him at the special teams level because he plays four or five positions, few of which are on special teams, and he's really, really good at special teams. So in order for Sean Payton to remove all of that weaponry, all of that versatility for a quarterback means that he must be incredibly accurate or, 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 um, Jameis Winston's an absolute mess. And so with either one of those things occurring, Taysom Hill has a chance to be a starter. I only see one of them as a possibility, which is Jameis Winston flat out being awful. But I think the competition will be close, if not Jameis edges ahead. And regardless, Jameis ends up the starting quarterback for the Saints. Because A, I believe Jameis is a flat out better quarterback. B, I believe that even if it's close, the versatility that Taysom provides would immediately lose all of its value if he is the starting quarterback. Because Jameis Winston can only play quarterback in the NFL. Taysom Hill can play quarterback, running back, receiver, gunner. Uh, punt returner if necessary and he plays a couple of other he plays Wildcat quarterback as well and he plays a couple of other positions on special teams I don't know the appropriate name for because I am not a special teams guru uh, but I believe that it will be Jameis Winston under center week one for the New Orleans Saints uh, but I believe Sean Payton will try and keep it under wraps until game time to try and make you prepare for two quarterbacks it's a rule that only works only works once but in a space where you've got 17 games, that's enough of a, a, to convince a coach to pull a ruse like that. Uh, the other quarterback competition, the other big one, is Cam Newton versus Mac Jones in New England. Uh, according to Mac Jones, the competition is friendly. They are okay. Cam has given Mac the nickname Mac and Cheese. Um, and Cam, like, he's enjoying himself out there. Like He's becoming... Back to being himself. Josh McDaniel said he expects a lot from Cam Newton considering that it is week two. Um, or it is year two, rather. And that Cam's had a year in the system. And even though he missed those few weeks because of COVID, he has the ability to learn quickly, pick up things on the fly, and still be a very successful member of the team playing a quarterback position and allowing Mac Jones to sit behind him, watch, and learn, which is something that Mac Jones said that he really wanted to do. You know, the rookies are acclimating well. Uh, like I said, Justin Fields signed his rookie contract. You've got several other rookies playing well. Justin Fields is getting a lot of praise from his teammates. Um, you're not getting a lot from a lot of other people. Jacksonville is speaking glowingly of Trevor Lawrence as well. But the biggest amount of praise is coming so far from the Bears regarding Justin Fields. Now, just a little quick news. Other than that, Dak Prescott is leaving the Adidas brand and signing a five-year deal with the Jordan brand, uh, becoming their highest-paid football player on their roster, along with the only quarterback on their roster as well. So Dak Prescott has been collecting bags all over the place. He signed his four-year, $160 million deal with the Cowboys. Now he signed this new brand spanking new deal with the Jordan brand. Uh, it pays to be the Dallas Cowboy quarterback and to be decent at it. Pretty good at it, actually. Uh, and so he is taking advantage of that. Kudos to Dak Prescott. Kyle Long 
one of the newest members of the Chiefs rebuild offensive line, has suffered a lower leg injury. Uh, it was initially reported as a fractured kneecap. Uh, turns out that wasn't the case, but still a lower leg injury, same kind of scale. So he will be out um, probably until right around training camp week one kind of situation as in with his time frame. Um, so the offensive line is coming in beat up for the Chiefs, which ultimately is what doomed them against Tampa Bay last season. And we saw Jalen Ramsey sporting a new number. Um, his whole career, he's been 21. Um, but we saw him sporting five at practice. So I don't know if that's an official switch or if that's one of those LeBron James wears six in practice kind of things um, where he wears a different number in practice for a day and he's not officially switching. As we saw Julio, uh, since he's been traded to the Tennessee Titans. Wow, I just realized that that happened this week. Um, I do a weekly shows. A lot of times when stories blow up, I usually, since, I mean, sometimes they go, they blow up on a Monday and they're gone by Wednesday and I don't talk about them. And I just realized that Julio Jones was traded this week. My apologies. Julio Jones was traded uh, from the Atlanta Falcons to the Tennessee Titans um, for a second and a fourth round pick. So it was Julio in a sixth for a second and a fourth. Uh, from the Titans, the second being in the, in, the, in the newest upcoming draft, 2022, and the fourth being in 2023. Uh, the sixth round pick, I believe, is 2022. And obviously, Julio Jones is going to play in 2021. Um, so, great move by the Titans. They were the Vegas favorite, followed by New England. Uh, I don't know why New England didn't give up two picks for them. Reportedly, it got a little too rich. For New England's blood, and so they pulled out of it, allowing Tennessee to really be the only team bidding for Julio Jones. Um, he is an absolute monster, especially when healthy. He's sporting a new number. He uh, was offered 11 by AJ Brown, uh, but he turned it down, uh, telling him AJ Brown was going to retire at number 11, and he went to and picked number two, which is funny because there was a rumor Darian Henry who was 22, was going to go back to two with the rule change, but he said he didn't want to A, buy the stock of jerseys with his name on it, and B, um, he also didn't want fans to have to buy another jersey to support him. And so his two was available, his college two, rather, was available, and so Julio Jones selected two. I don't know if that was a mini homage to Derrick Henry or not, but he picked number two. He wore two at no other point in his athletic career. So maybe he's want to tie something new. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, Julio Jones, the Tennessee Titan. Again, sorry for not leading with that in this topic. Um, and to make that work, Ryan Tannehill took a basic contract restructure, moved a little salary to bonus to free up the money required to sign Julio. Um, so good news there. But up next, we're going to shift to Major League Baseball and talk about what's going down there. Alrighty, guys, and we are back. Now we're going to talk about a little Major League Baseball. And you know how we roll. We talk about baseball. We look right at those standings. So we're going to start off in the AL. Um, division winners are the top three I'm going to name. And then the best records after them or the wild card teams will come after those top three. So you've got Rays, Tampa Bay Rays, Chicago White Sox, Oakland Athletics are the, are the division winners right now. 
the Boston Red Sox, Houston Astros, and Cleveland Indians are your three best of the next. And out in the National League, you've got the San Francisco Giants, the Brewers, the New York Mets, and those are your division winners. And then you have the Los Angeles Dodgers, the San Diego Padres, and the Chicago Cubs as your best of the next year, three top teams that aren't division winners at this time. Now, there's a few things I want to talk about when it comes to baseball. The Yankees are in an offensive slump. Uh, remember I was talking to Noise a few weeks ago about, oh, yeah, that's what happens to us. And, you know, we struggle a little bit early. Then we bats get hot. And then folks are in trouble. Well, the bats have cooled back off. And we're in trouble. Um, we were gaining ground there. We were fifth or sixth at one point. Now we're starting at seventh or eighth uh, and trending backwards. So we have to get that situation fixed. ASAP, uh, Yankees management, I believe, needs to make a trade. Um, ironically, the Yankees have a good staff and need a bat, maybe. And the Dodgers have all the bats in the world and could use a relief pitcher or two. And I believe those two teams can make something work, even though they were World Series opponent favorites. Uh, they were each one favorite out of their respective side to get to the World Series. But I believe they can definitely help each other out with a simple couple reliever pitcher for a rotational bat um, situation. The next big thing is that uh, baseball has a sticky substance situation. So pitchers are being caught, uh, being caught with a sticky substance on their hand. Why does the ball sticking matter more, Justin? Think about the ball sticking, it would go slower, right? Wrong. Actually, by being sticky and the substance on the hands being sticky, it is forcing the ball to rotate more. So curveballs are harder, slides are further away. Even fastballs come faster because they're rotating through the air faster. It is an absolutely major advantage for the pitcher if he can manipulate the ball um, surface so he can throw all around the yard with relatively ease. Um, and he can throw all over the plate with curves, with sliders, and any other off-speed pitch he has that requires a lot of movement. He can do so with the sticky substance on his hand a lot better than he could um, if he were just using his regular bare hand. And the third and final topic we're going to talk about is uh, Pete Alonzo's claim. So he said, uh, and no certain words that he believes that major league baseball is manipulating the baseball yes the baseball itself depending on the free agent class so if the class is better the balls are manipulated where they fly out more if the class is worse the balls are manipulated where they don't fly out as much now this isn't the first case of ball manipulation accusations from a player you darvish Remember in the World Series, he was complaining about the ball, saying that the sticker they put on the ball or the marking or whatever they put on the ball was much slicker than what they normally were using in a regular season. So this mark was to signify this is a World Series baseball. Unfortunately, Hugh Darvish is a slide-based pitcher, and so he's saying the ball is sliding, for lack of a better term, out of his own hand, and so the ball is not moving nearly as much, making his slider a lot easier to hit, and he was blaming the baseball. Uh, remember the pitchers a few years ago, a couple years ago, were complaining league-wide that something's going on with the ball. 
that the ball about the ball's bouncing off bats. The home run shot through the roof, and they were accused of major baseball of um, doing something with the ball, manipulating the ball so that it flies out further. It, it's, it's easier to hit further. Uh, Chick did the long ball, and so do TV ratings. And so the pitchers were complaining that baseball has done major league baseball rob manfred commission's office has done something to the ball to make it just you touch it it's gone it feels like and so there's again it's not the most you know uncommon accusation for baseball manipulation it is however the first one that is money driven solely in terms of free agent class is better ball suddenly bounces more free agent class is worse ball doesn't do nearly as well and so that is something definitely to keep our eye on if it could be proven somehow um i'm sure they have the makeup composition of every ball that major league baseball has ever produced so i'm sure that if it really became a thing they could easily prove one way or the other whether the accusations have any merit at all or if it's just an upset pitcher an upset player complaining um trying to find a reason why he's not performing as well as he should and also the major league baseball all-star game will stay in denver it was moved from the atlanta area after a georgia law um restricting certain voting practices and affecting uh the african-american community would the major league baseball move the game to denver where it will remain so regardless uh georgia pulls the law back anything like that it will remain in denver and not in atlanta for the mlb all-star game but up next, we're going to talk about some college football. Alrighty, guys, and welcome back in. And now we're going to talk about some major college football news. So obviously you're thinking, man, it's the middle of June or early June, rather. Or no, middle of June. And so college football pretty much will be the last thing on my radar. It is not. Normally it is, but it is not in this case because we're getting college football expansion news that could occur as soon as probably next season, probably 2022, uh, due to TV deals and things like that. Uh, but so remember a few months ago, a couple months ago, I came in and I was like, yeah, I'm hearing college football is going to go to eight. It's going to expand and it's probably going to go to eight within the next couple of years to try and make up the money for COVID. You know, I, I, I kept hearing that. I kept hearing, man, something is they're, they're going to expand. It's a matter of when, not if it's going to go to eight teams. Well, expansion talk finally hit the full fledged table and the media got a win. I was wrong. I was deathly wrong. Instead of an eight game team. They're going to expand by eight teams, making it a 12-team college football playoff. Uh, the details are not ironed out. It's not even agreed to. Uh, no look at what TV money could possibly be, how the schedule would work, uh, anything like that. I mean, think about it. If you're – well, okay, let's talk about the format first before I say that part. So it would be 12 teams. That is what they have so far, 12 teams. Seeds one through four would get a bye week. So – Seeds one through four automatically in the second round. Uh, seeds five through eight will host on their campus. Seeds seeds nine through twelve 
depending on the matchup. So five would host 12, six would host 11, eight would host nine, uh, or eight would host 10. You, you get the point. So um, in terms of how, you know, they would host. So five through eight would host nine through 12 on their campus. And then the winners, you know, just like any regular other, other player bracket. And then the power, so the, one of the big things that I saw, or probably in my opinion, the biggest thing I saw was the power five would get an automatic bid. Every single power five conference, Pac-12, Big 12, SEC, ACC, Big 10, will secure a, a automatic bid for the conference champion. So if you look at it in the past few years, it's been four teams. So we'd always go, what conference is going to get left out? Or what two conference is going to get left out if you get a situation like Georgia, Alabama, where it's two SEC schools? You know, it's always which conference is going to get left out or which two conferences are going to get out, three conferences are going to get left out, you know, depending on how it breaks down. Well, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be a conference out automatically. Usually it's been the Pac-12 that's out first. And so the Pac-12 usually gets the rep of the weakest conference. And when you get that rep, your champion pretty much has to be undefeated or has a one loss in conference by a three on the road kind of loss in order to keep yourself in against a team of Big 12, SEC, ACC, Big 10 resume. But now every single Power 5 conference, or in this proposal, every single Power 5 conference would, would make it the playoff. It wouldn't guarantee you a home game. Uh, similar to the NFL, which I pose it for the NFL. You win your division, you're in the playoffs, not guaranteed a home game. In this scenario, you would, you know, again, you win your di- division, go your conference, which is basically your division in the NFL, you get a playoffs berth. Um, so, like last year, USC was ranked, Oregon was not when they played in the Pac 12 championship game. Oregon knocks off USC. So, USC would be sent to the Rose Bowl uh, in theory, and Oregon would get a playoff spot. Probably the 12th seed, but they would get in. And then the other one, another major change, same vein, different arm, is that a group of five gets one automatic bid um, to the highest ranking group of five member. So last year, that would have been Coastal Carolina. Coastal Carolina would have gotten in to the Castle Ball playoff, probably the 11th seed, but they would have gotten in. And had to go on the road to Georgia and I forgot, I forgot who was six. Um, but absolutely huge news, especially with the group of five getting their own bid. Now, 12 would work if you do it this way in terms of scheduling. So if you're a team that played the conference championship game and you don't end up with a wild and you don't end up with an automatic top four spot, you have to, you know, wild card it. You're, you're fifth seed. You have to win the first round. You have to win four more games on top of your conference championship game. So there's a very real possibility that a school will play 17 games to get to the college football, uh, to get to the national championship. Nick Saban could go 16 and 0 because he'll have to play three conference, three playoff postseason games, and he still has his conference championship. So he may end up going 16 and 0 one time or a couple of times. But that is the ultimate new goal to so go 16 and 0. Um, by adding one, maybe even two, and go 17-0 playoff games to your schedule. So that was huge news out of the NCAA. But up next, we're going to have our best for last, which is going to be a talk about Simone Biles.
welcome back in and now we're gonna talk about the greatest women's gymnastics screw it i'm gonna say it the greatest gymnastics competitor of all time simone biles um recently she wrapped up her seventh u.s all-around title uh i mean her average of all her events um was the highest and so she wins the all-around gold medal her seventh um as a tune-up for the olympic trials and japanese olympics she is an absolute amazing athlete actually gymnastics especially women's gymnastics was allegedly built for people like simone biles this change they made in their scoring system to reward people being athletic. So, for instance, if you were to do a move, they would give you a, they would install a baseline score. A baseline score is do this move, land it, and you'll know you're guaranteed a four. Or you know you're guaranteed a five. And it's meant to differentiate the amount of um, execution it would take to make a three to like a ten. It would have to be flawless, and you would have to stand like that for a couple minutes afterwards. However, making a 7.5 or 8 look like a 10 is probably just landing it without falling backwards too hard. And so it is a very interesting situation. Uh, she has multiple moves named after her called the Biles that no one else has ever done before and no one else dares to attempt. I mean, Simone Biles is the greatest gymnast ever. She is top six or seven in terms of United States athletes ever. Um, she is an absolute animal. She is an absolute machine. She does commercials and you can tell she's been training. She has a stable relationship. She is a great person to look up to being the figurative word. But that is all I have for today. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. I hope you guys tell your friends and your family about the show. And don't forget to follow at JTime Sports on Twitter and Instagram. And remember, always you can follow the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Now, this is your host, Justin Jackson, signing out.